Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. If you weren't able to make it to the fall retreat last weekend, you missed a great time. And while we can't bring you all of the relaxation and fun and games and uh, community building time that people enjoyed on the retreat, we can at least bring you the three talks that Pastor Tom Gibbs of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, Texas, delivered over the course of the weekend. But before we get to the first of those talks, I want to give you a quick reminder. Embracing the Other, our next cultural intelligence seminar, is taking place this coming Tuesday night and features pastor and speaker Reverend Erwin Ince. Learning to understand the cultural differences that exist in our church community and in our city and learning to engage and navigate those differences in ways that clearly reflect the character and love and grace of God are important parts of what it means for us as a church to be in and for Washington, D.C. So, please set aside the time Tuesday night for this important event and RSVP today at gracedc.net slash downtown. And now, here's Tom. Um, it is a joy to be with you guys and to see all of what God is doing here at Grace DC. I've heard from afar and um, shared, uh, Glenn shared with me over the years all the many things that are happening here. Also, what's happening in his life. I can't share those stories uh, with you. Um, but, uh, but it is so fun to be with you. And, and uh, as Glenn mentioned, we've known each other for 20 years back in seminary. I think we were on student council together. Neither of us knew exactly how we arrived in that place, our final year of seminary, but we were there, and uh, we've been friends ever since. What I, I'm going to talk a little bit about Redeemer in our talk tonight. Uh, Glenn gave you a little preview of some of the things. Mike, where's Mike? Mike, where are you? Where are you, Mike? Is he in the other group? Oh, he's with the children. Okay. Yeah, Mike and I were in a doctor of ministry program together, and wow, what a great guy. I'm so thrilled that he's serving with you. Uh, he's one of the great friendships that came out of that group. So, um, so anyway, just wanted to mention Mike as well. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Uh, look at a familiar passage probably to most of you, although it may not be familiar to some of you. But it's certainly a very important passage in the Bible, especially the book of Romans. The first time I heard someone say, or actually read, can I get it a little lower? Because it, I want it low. Yeah, I'm not used to speaking into a microphone. I usually have a lavalier, so I'm, and I'm not a performer like Glenn, so take me a while to get used to this. Uh, and I actually don't usually preach with a podium. So so anyway, um, but the first time I, re- I read C.S. Lewis when, when he said, we're far too easily pleased. Some of you have probably read that quote in The Weight of Glory. Um, something clicked in my mind that said, yeah, that's true. As God's people, just as people in general, we settle, right? We, we settle. We, we trade in what God has intended for us for something which 
It may delight us for a season, but ultimately disappoints. This morning I want to think about the glorious uh, plan or purpose God has for us as his people, which is really nothing more, nothing less than for us to return uh, to his glory. Let's look in verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their f- foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became rule, fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is God's holy word. Let's pray again for a moment. Heavenly Father, bless now this your word, and we pray that you would send your spirit that we might have eyes and ears, hearts and minds to discern all that you promise. And might we believe and embrace all that is of Christ in our time together. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, you ever wondered why God makes it difficult for us to grasp his reality? You know, why can't he make it a little less ambiguous? Um, that's a question. Maybe you haven't vocalized it, but I think it's a question that we all wish God would clear things up, um, you know, about who he is and his calling for our life, um, about the way the world is supposed to go. That, that's a question that pastor and writer Frederick Bigner once asked in a sermon. And he, he um, imagined, you, you know, what if God did do something um, uh, that was utterly unambiguous the image that he came up with was what if god were to take the great dim river of the milky way as we see it flowing across the sky i looked for it last night couldn't see it with the clouds maybe it will be out tonight but what if he were to take that river of stars as we look up in the sky and rearrange the stars so that in gleaming sparkling to use glenn's words earlier uh, letters uh, we read in the middle of the night, I really exist, or God is. And we walked away for, from that moment. Can you imagine how the world would respond if it looked up in the sky and everywhere we could see that those words were written? I really exist. God is. Now, not only would the scholars at NASA get excited, everybody would, right? Everybody would be like, this is it. We now know that there is a God. That governments would get realigned, right? Geopolitical um, uh, um, 
fractures would reconcile. Um, we would probably see relationships change. Marriages would, would reconcile. All sorts of wonderful things would, would begin to emerge. Of course, as Christians, we would sort of be able to say to the world, I told you so. <laughs> right? We, we would have our moment of glory. Um, there would be this great and glorious, extraordinary sense that, yeah, God really is at work in the world. And then time would pass, right? Life would go on. God really exists. God is. We see it every night. And yet, we would go on with our lives. We would become accustomed to it so that, in Beekner's words, eventually, an unlikely person, maybe even a little child, would say, so what? So what? what? What difference does it actually make that we know that God exists? How does that affect my life? How does it change the world? And with that, those stars would begin to fade, right, into the dark night sky. If you know your Bibles, you know that God has done something like that, right? Not written the words, I really exist, but in fact, the Bible tells us that when we look up at the night sky, we are to hear the very speech of God. Psalm 19 declares the heavens declare God's glory. The sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. That when we look up at the sky, the Bible claims that God is declaring himself. And not only that, when we come to the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says that not only the sky above declares his existence, but the innate sense within the human heart as those who bear the image of God, we know God exists. We know the God who has made us. Apostle Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. The Bible has the audacity to say that our problem as human beings is not needing to be convinced of God's existence. That that's not our fundamental problem. The Bible says that all of us already know God. Everybody knows the God of the Scriptures. And I think if we're honest, we would even say that our experience bears that out. We can't prove that empirically, obviously. But intuitively, we have a sense of that in our experience. And as we look across the world, we recognize the religious impulse in the heart of each person. At the turn of the 20th century, modernity was at its height, right? There was this great confidence in a scientific and technological worldview that was emerging. And one of the consequences of that ideology was um, that Christianity and religion was going to fade away, right? That there was going to be no need for God in the modern world. What did we discover, though, in the 20th century? The greatest expansion of Christianity in the history of the world. In 1910, 
that there were about 600 million Christians in the world. Now there are more than 2 billion Christians. And that's just Christians. If we, I didn't take the time to tally up all of the people who claim some religious affiliation, but people in the world believe in God. Basically, everybody does. This is just the way God has made us. The challenging part, though, is believing in God doesn't erase the challenges of the human heart, right? Lots of people believe in God. You believe in God, and yet it doesn't deal with the human heart. It doesn't deal with what's broken about us. We, like that child that Beekner mentions, are asking that question, so what, what difference does it make? In the Roman world, religious belief was also common. It was a pantheon of gods. Lots of gods, lots of faith expressions, lots of religious experiences. Christianity was among many others. And yet it was unique in this sense. It was claiming a sort of exclusive affection for the human heart. It was saying that there is one God above all other gods. It was dealing with that temptation of the human heart to be distracted endlessly into lesser gods. Paul the Apostle wanted those who were reading this letter to rethink their lives in terms of the glory of God so that our lives might get realigned to Him, His purposes, His saving mercies in and through the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would live for Him that we might return to the glory that he intended for the human race. Our problem is not, well, believing in God. Our problem is living for this God. In order for that to happen, we have to address the ways in which we've misplaced glory, how we've traded God in, how we've settled. And that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing here in verses 19 and 20. We know God, and yet we don't worship Him. We've misdirected the religious impulse of the human heart. G.K. Chesterton, some of you may know, said once that when a person ceases to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. Just go, go after anything. And, and, and that's, that's true. There is this impulse within the human heart. We, we might call it an idolatrous impulse that goes after all these other things which ultimately do not satisfy us. I, I still have children who are um, young enough to love Despicable Me, my youngest. I like Despicable Me. Um, and I love the picture of Gru, who lives in this suburban neighborhood, right? And, uh, you know, this beautiful little uh, setting, but underneath there's this subterranean labyrinth of evil scheming. That's, that's us, right? That's the glory of humanity, that there's this beautiful expression of, of God's glory in each and every person, and yet underneath that there is this labyrinthine, subterranean, sinister scheme in which we are supplanting the true 
about God. So what Paul says in verse 18, men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Though what can be known about God is plain to them, God has shown it to them. And yet we suppress that truth. We don't have to complicate that. Um, so often we, we think of evil in, in the grand and, and most terrible ways that we see it expressed, whether it's the Holocaust or, or 9-11 or um, great acts of violence in, in war, and, and those are all obviously evil and sinful. But the Apostle Paul is saying that, that the, the grand scheme, the worst scheme, is this, this alliance that each human heart is making with the suppression of the truth, about God. We're taking God out of his rightful place and putting something else there. Taking the truth of God and, and, and living as though we do not need God. Um, now, I'm told the most successful treatment for alcoholism um, is, is what we all know, Alcoholics Anonymous. Some of you may have struggled with alcoholism. It's a 12-step recovery process, and the, the, the critical piece of that journey, or at least one of the critical pieces of that journey out of alcoholism, is the acknowledgement that I need help, that I need dependence upon God, that I can't depend upon myself, that, that I can't depend upon alcohol, but, but, but rather to put my faith and trust in, in God. Paul is saying we're suppressing that truth in reliance upon ourselves, and so we're practicing a lie. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. The, the, the suppression of the truth is in, in collusion with these lies that we practice. And I'm guessing that none of you have figurines that dot your window seal that you bow down to. And, and we read these words and we think, well, that's not me. But we forget that those figurines in the ancient world represented values and ideals and goals that are familiar to each human heart. Family, security, wealth, weather, comfort, health, all of these things that we love, they too loved, and they sought them, and they sought them through the idols that they bowed down to, and so those lies are still practiced by us. We practice the same lies, thinking that that will bring us ultimate life. So in Washington, D.C., I guess there are some idols that, that might be attractive um, to those who gather here. Um, power. Um, that not just the power to rise, ambition, but, but think about the power to do good, to fix things. The, the ideal of creating a better world. I, I worked so hard to make a difference. That, that can be an idol that we give ourselves to or to plan so well. 
to create a, a wonderful organization. There are lots of idols. Health, to be in good shape. To craft our children into the perfect people. Um, or maybe it's because I come from the perfect family myself. Of course, there's the idol of wealth and influence. When we're rejected from those primary idols of our heart, those primary lies that we give ourselves to, we have a secondary set of idols that we give ourselves to to manage that disappointment. So we turn to alcohol or we turn to pornography or we turn to, to something else. This is how we manage this, this other set of lies with another set of lies. And we don't even have to do that with sort of a secular constellation of idols. We can do it with religious idols, too. We can even relate to Christianity in such a way that it becomes a system to manage our lives, to make our lives work. So we follow all the rules. You know, Christians can be great rule followers. Or, or we have the right theology. Or, or we, we, we worship it in the right way. And what we're doing is we're manipulating our lives so that we have life as we pursue all of these various things, thinking that I can do it. So, so we're suppressing God from his rightful place. We're misplacing him with the practice of these lives. And then Paul says there's an outcome in verse 21. That the, the, there's darkness that comes. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, give him thanks, but became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. The, the misplacement of glory leads to darkness of life. Dick Kyes, he, he says this, the message of the Bible is that just as idols deceive us, so also they eventually disappoint and disillusion. They are silent when we turn to them for insight and impotent when we go to them for help. That, that's the tragedy of idolatry. The more we give ourselves to them, the more they disappoint us. We keep serving up ourselves, and they keep wanting more. Any Rebecca Ferguson fans? Anybody know who she is? Well, I like her. <laughs> She's got... She's got a great song, All That Glitter and All That Gold Won't Buy You Happy. That's true. But we don't believe that. All that glitter and all that gold won't buy you happy. That, that's the great irony of idolatry. They promise freedom, power, joy, fruitfulness, but they never deliver. The more they promise, the more satisfaction begins to pull away from our hearts. Um, that's the scheme of the human heart. Not believing that God exists, but how we misplace him and put other gods in his place. And when we do that, God says, not only are we trading in his glory, we're trading in our glory. Not only are we losing him, we're losing ourselves. And Paul says the answer to that is the gospel. That's what he's writing about. 
The gospel is God's answer to the scheme of the human heart. God wants us in the gospel to return us to glory. And God didn't write his name in the sky. He already did that the first time. The, the, the next time God wants to rescue humanity, what did he do? He put his glory in our flesh. He put his glory in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He indwelled us. He tabernacled with us, the Gospel of John says. Um, he, Hebrews says it this way, Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us, how? By his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The message of the scriptures is that when God wanted to return humanity to its glory and to him as the God of glory, he brought glory to dwell in human being. And that human being is good news, the gospel, a message that speaks hope to humanity. And that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of this news because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the gospel, God's returning humanity to glory. Paul uses the most expansive word to describe that return, salvation. It's a churchy word, right? But it is the word the Bible uses to describe the renovation project, the rescue project that God has for each person. He wants to save us, rescue us. And the way that project of rescue unfolds is to return us to the truth. The truth that we've suppressed, God in his saving grace returns us to that truth. He returns us back to himself as being the answer. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer to the questions that we ask. Think about all the questions. God is saying that he is the answer that there can be, in fact, no meaning in our lives until we're connected to that truth from whom all other things are connected. God is the great universe, right? In him, everything else gets connected. From him, all of the other truths flow the gospel reconnects us to the one who created the world and so connects us to the world. The gospel returns us to truth. The gospel returns us to power. God's power makes us live. I'm going to talk about that more tonight. Um, but the gospel is a living power. It renovates our, our lives. Sin pollutes our lives. Sin darkens our lives. The gospel brings life. The gospel sets us free. At Redeemer, we have a phrase called gospel freedom. The gospel frees us. It frees us from those lies. 
I mean, all the ways, all of the very specific and concrete ways that we have gotten confused and given ourselves to that which will not save, will not deliver. The gospel sets us free so that we are um, empowered for a new future. I was talking with my son about this, and, um, you know, growing up a preacher's kid is not easy. Isabel, can I get an amen? And we've been talking about that with my son Isabel and my son Thomas are the same age. Um, and he said, Dad, I feel like I'm always trying out for God. I bet some of you feel that way. Just try, I'm trying. There's no power in that, though. That's enslavement. In the gospel, God sets us free by, by saying, I have fulfilled all of the demands. I've met the demands, the penalty and the righteous requirement. And it's because of that, not only does God empower us that we might live in relationship, but because he's met all of those demands, he set us free from the guilt of our sin. He's forgiven us. One of the greatest ways that we've been blocked in our lives is we carry around our guilt. The gospel sets us free from that guilt by bringing us forgiveness. In the gospel, Paul says we receive righteousness, that the righteousness of God is revealed. This isn't just God's righteousness that is in Christ, it's the righteousness that's given to us by faith, which is the second way I want us to think about how God's glory returns us to glory. He saves us, but he doesn't just save us. The gospel's for everybody. He's returning humanity to glory. We read to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and and we think, that's nice. (laughs) That's not how an ancient reader would have read that. The idea that the gospel or the Christianity was for the entire world, that was a new thought. That was a new thought. The inclusiveness of, of Christianity, the vision of Christianity to embrace the entire world was a transformative vision. In the ancient world, the logic of religion was governed by the same logic that governs the lunchroom of your middle school. Remember that? You know, who has the power? And they make the rules. And you're in that tribe or you're not in that tribe. And if you're not in that tribe, well, that sucks. Can I say that, Glenn? (laughs) You know, tough. You're not in. You're not a part of this. It was our God, though, who thought to take care of those outside the tribe. Those who were outside of the community of faith. God was the one who wasn't just thinking about Israel, his tribe. He, he had from the very beginning thought about his tribe, Israel, to be the vehicle, the means of reaching all of the tribes, all of the nations. And what we know from our Bibles is that Israel failed in that. And so God sent, what, a new Israel. Jesus, so that his worldwide plan of inclusion could be realized, so that his worldwide plan of salvation could be brought 
It was in the Lord Jesus Christ that God was thinking about all of the peoples of the world through faith. It's not about jumping through various hoops. That's another thing that makes this truly inclusive. God says to be included in my salvation, it's not about whether you perform, whether you measure up, whether you've, you've gotten your act together. But, but it resonates with what Glenn was speaking about other, earlier, that humility, that humility of faith, of dependence, of declaring my need before God. That it's not about my assertion, but rather it's about my dependence. The inclusiveness of Christianity is seen in this invitation of faith. That is, for whoever will come, not the successful, not the strong, but those who depend upon the God, the God of glory. God doesn't want us to settle. He wants us to find our glory in and through His glory, revealed in the person and work of His Son that is uniting humanity into being this glorious community. Um, and yet, again, understanding ourselves is so hard. Any Walker Percy fans? Okay, thank you. Um, Lost in the Cosmos, have you read that? Anybody read that? It's one of my favorite books. It's, the subtitle's The Last Self-Help Book. And he, he has a number of quips that he uses to describe uh, what he's going to write about. He, he says this is a book about the self, the strange case of the self, yourself, the, go, the ghost which haunts the cosmos. It's another one. How can you survive in the cosmos about which you know more and more while knowing less and less about yourself? This despite there being 10,000 self-help books, 100,000 psychotherapists, and 100 million fundamentalist Christians. <laughs> Why is it that of all the billions and billions of strange objects in this cosmos, novas, quasars, pulsars, black holes, you are beyond a shadow of doubt the strangest. <laughs> you know, they're not just quips, are they? They're pointing out something deep and significant to each human being. We know so much. I'm going to talk about how much we know later. But despite all of that knowledge, a depth of meaning about the human person, about our own person, our own self, seems to evade our grasp. Why is it so hard for us to understand ourselves so that we live with love and meaning and purpose? We, we can't do it on our own. In your notes, there's a quotation by John Calvin that a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. We can't make sense of our lives unless we start with God and we start with his gospel. And only then do we return to glory. God is on a mission to reclaim his glory in us for his glory, for himself. And he won't stop until he brings us back to himself. And in fact, that's what he's done, right? He didn't write his name in the sky as much as we might want it. He wrote his name in us. 
Somebody that looks just like us. Someone who died a death that we deserved. And someone who was resurrected to a life that we will one day be resurrected to. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are the gospel of good news and that through your glory, you are returning us to glory. We pray that we might be renewed in our inner being with that hope that is alone found in you. And we ask this in your holy name. Amen.